0: Hey there, listeners. This is Jasmine Aguilera, head of audio at the LA Times. Thank you so much for following and listening to LA Times podcasts, like Asian Enough. You'll still be able to find Asian Enough on your favorite podcast platforms. But starting April 11th, you're going to see a new show popping up in your feed. It's called Foretold. Foretold follows the story of Paulina Stevens, a Romani woman who was raised with the assumption that she would leave school, marry young, and become a fortune teller. Her fate seemed pretty certain, until she decided to leave it all behind. With Paulina's story as a starting point, Foretold will take you past the neon psychic signs and trendy tarot cards to unravel myths and stereotypes that have followed the Romani people for centuries. If you follow Asian enough, you already follow Foretold. Be among the first to hear Episode 1 on April 11th, and keep following for new episodes every Tuesday. Can a fortune teller change your fate? Find out on Foretold, a new podcast from the LA Times.
1: From the Los Angeles Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian-American guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with
2: being Asian-American. I'm Tracy Brown. And I'm Jen Yamada. Today we've got a very special bonus episode of Asian Enough with the actor, activist, and Marvel superhero, Simu Lu. In the new movie Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, Simu plays the titular character, a young man hiding out from a villainous and immortal warlord who happens to be his overbearing father. In this role, Simu is making history as Marvel's first Asian superhero.
3: We're not here to make another martial arts movie about a foreign guy who comes in and, you know, doesn't really have an arc, doesn't really have a personality other than the fact that he's different. He's from a different place and he speaks English differently. You know, we want this to be a real story where the central character goes on a journey and is three-dimensional and it and is very much about his relationships.
1: Before catapulting into superstardom with Shang-Chi, Simu starred in the hit Netflix show, Kim's Convenience. For five seasons, the show chronicled the lives of a Korean-Canadian
2: family that ran a convenience store in Toronto. We chat with Simu about feeling empowered on the set of Shang-Chi versus frustrated while making Kim's convenience, authentically portraying the Asian-American experience on screen, and his love of 90s boy bands. That's all coming up after the break. Stay with
3: us.
1: Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's our conversation with actor and activist, Simu Liu. Hello,
2: this is Jen Yamato, LA Times. And I'm Tracy Brown from the LA Times.
3: And I'm Simu Liu, and I'm also with the LA Times. Um, Excellent.
2: Excellent. (laughs) Simu, how are you doing?
3: I'm good. It's uh, It's been a bit of a whirlwind these past few weeks, I should say, specifically the past week. Okay. Um, it's, it's a lot, and, and it's, a lot of it is going through it for the first time for me. I'm definitely not a Hollywood veteran by any stretch of the word, so um, it's, it's, been, it's been a lot. Yeah um,
2: So we want to start with talking about your relationship with Marvel, which dates back actually to what, 2014, when you tweeted, quote, "Hey Marvel, great job with Captain America and Thor." Now, how about an Asian-American hero, end quote. And, of course, so many young actors of color in Hollywood do not get big opportunities like this. And that tweet was kind of a moonshot. So what were you actually expecting to happen?
3: I tweeted it to maybe 14 followers, so not a lot, I can say. I know the tweets have stood the test of time and they've aged better than the finest of wines. But, uh, look... It's a long shot, no matter which way you cut it. And, you know, I I think I made the tweet more so just because I was such a fan of the genre and just watching so many superheroes. And at that point, I think in 2014, I think it was like Civil War. So it was just like they were starting to come together and you were starting to see the MCU forming into what it is today. Just feeling like, oh my God, this is incredible. And then, you know, how much more incredible would it be I saw myself reflected on that screen. And now when I say see myself reflected, I really did not mean it in the literal sense. But I understand <laughs> now I am I am literally reflected on that screen and, and in a very intimate way. So um, I promise you I, that's not what I meant. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, regardless of your intent, like you manifested it, you've made this happen. Um, so in Shangxi, we meet Shang-Chi before he's the hero, right? Initially... Um, He lives in San Francisco. He goes by the westernized name of Sean. Like, he's not quite figured out what he's doing with his life, maybe. Um, He has a complicated relationship with his father. But how did you relate to that character? Like, are there any parallels with your life that you drew from?
3: Lots, lots. I think that's part of the beauty of this origin story is that we started in such a relatable and human place. You know, I, I remember not so long ago, I was struggling to find my own way. I had my own very, very complicated relationship with my parents and trying to navigate their expectations versus mine, their culture versus mine, their upbringing versus mine. And, you know, for so long, it was just like we didn't understand each other. We fundamentally could not get on the same page. And that was really, really hard. And, you know, worsened still, when I told them all of a sudden, you know, I wanted to be an actor, which certainly did not help anything for a couple of Aerospace engineers who wanted nothing more than their son following in their footsteps. It was uh, it was definitely a lot, and I don't think they knew how to react fully when I broke the news. But uh, yeah, it, it was a few years before they would start to come around, and then with you know Kim's convenience being that little break that led to the big break, I think they were they were slowly a coming terms with the fact that I wasn't going to med school or law school, and b kind of starting to understand how serious I was about this craft and about the work.
2: Well, this is like the A-level achievement, right? Of proving to your parents that that choice was the right one for you. But uh, let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about that relationship that you described. It's so interesting to to know that until you were five years old, you were actually raised in China by grandparents. Mm-hmm. And then your parents came back and brought you to Canada, mm-hmm. which is where you grew up. But talk about how that experience shaped your sense of self and and exactly what you think you and your parents were kind of like not on the same wavelengths
3: about. I, I like, I joke with my parents all the time. I'm like, diet adopted, you know, like kind of adopted, kind of not. Like, you know, my parents were my biological parents, but at the same time, I think they missed out on a lot of my early years and early development. And so I think I, I just remember showing up and like meeting my mom and meeting my dad and to have, you know, like, even to say that sentence out loud is so interesting, right? It's so weird. But um, I just kind of remembered early on, I think my parents would be so flustered about things that I would do or would they wouldn't understand why I was a certain way. And it's like, you know, if a parent had been involved in every step of a child's development, I just feel like there would be more understanding or there would be more empathy. But I think there was just an innate disconnect between me and them just because we had spent so much time apart. And those years were, you know, so critical in forming a child's personality. Yeah. And so, you know, frequently I think they would say, like, I don't know why you're like this, or I don't know why you, you know, you turned out this way. And you know, I I wouldn't know either. I wouldn't have the answer, you know. <laughs> it, it certainly wasn't because of them. But I will say I, I grew up a happy kid, you know, mm-hmm. in, in China, and in Harbin, with my grandparents, with my Ye and my nai I loved being with them, even in a little apartment with no hot water and no running water for half of the day. I was as happy as you possibly could be. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of our conflict um, in my adolescence stemmed from just me not wanting to go down the path that they had prescribed for me and, you know, exacerbated by the distance that we already, you know, felt with each other. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't refer to my parents as mom and dad, as mama and baba. I don't Mm -hmm. call them by their first names. I just, you know, it's kind of weird. Like, I just kind of talk to them. Um, I never really got used to the idea of calling them mom and dad. And, you know... For them, I think upward social mobility and academic success were so closely tied to one another. They were basically synonymous. And Mm -hmm. so for them, the only way that I was going to succeed was getting good grades, going to a good school, you know, and and especially when I hit puberty, like my priorities changed in a big way. I wanted to be cool. (laughs) I wanted to get girls. I wanted to talk to the, you know, like. I wanted all of those things yeah. and I wanted to be the high school quarterback and I wanted, you know, and my parents were not having any of it. So it created a, a huge divide in our household. And You weren't and, like, mom, um,
2: dad, watch One Tree Hill. This will explain everything. Can you just watch One Tree Hill? Can you just, just
3: three episodes of the OC, all right? Just understand that I am like a combination of Ryan and Seth and I just want my summer and Marissa. And, you know.
2: That's perfectly clear to me.
3: <laughs> thank you. Thank you for saying that. A low-key thank you for the OC deep cut as well. I'm, I'm glad that somebody understood that and, and loved the show as much as I did.
2: Oh, so many people. <laughs> you've actually, you've described something about that time in your life that I really related to, which is like having a chip on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's the same way for you, but for me growing up, I felt so, oh, I don't know, It's it was like part, Angry. It's. It was angry. It was motivating, also, but it, was, it came from the knowledge that the world did not see me fully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder how did that present itself for you, and when did it change for you?
3: Sure. Um, that feeling of not being seen, I think, um, relates so hugely with that. And you know, I talk about going through puberty, and we joke about it, but I think something happened when I went through that process, and. I think at school too, it's like when you're six or you're seven, everyone's kind of friends with everyone else and there's not really like a hierarchy. But then as you get older and then you develop, like it's like something happens around sixth or seventh grade and like hierarchies form, cool kids form. And I knew very quickly I was not a cool kid and I wanted to be a cool kid, um, but I just wasn't, you know. I was teased for everything that I was, partially being Asian, partially just being a dork, maybe both of them kind of being intertwined with one another. And um, the, the way it manifested for me, honestly, I just, like, I wanted so badly to be the guy in the OC, the guy in One Tree Hill. And and I just, like, I was, like, such a little attention seeker. I would always, like, try to be like, hey, look at me, you know, <laughs> notice me. I was, like, a break dancer. I wanted to be a Backstreet Boy, so I was also a singer. I just thought if I was, like, always the center of attention, maybe then I could... People would like me and I could impress them. Like, <laughs> it was honestly exhausting. I'm, I'm exhausting myself just thinking about it. But, Does that mean uh, you knew
2: all the Backstreet dances?
3: I knew a fair amount of them. Maybe, you know, more, more NSYNC, I should say. The, the oh. girl that I had a crush on, uh-huh. uh, Jackie D, in, when I was in sixth grade, she was a big NSYNC fan. And so I went and I learned all the songs and all the dances. Bye, bye, bye. And, um, you know, <laughs> uh, just basically just tried to be the guy. Just totally was, you know, f- faking it and and full of false bravado and false confidence. When deep down, I was like super intensely insecure.
1: <laughs> um, so I love this, but I I do have to get back to the movie. Um, I think, <laughs> oh right, the movie. Right. That's right. Oh yeah, the mo- the movie. yeah. yeah I guess we do have to talk um, about it. What's exciting for me about Shang Chi, and I think it is for a lot of people, is that it's not just right on screen representation, like. The director, Destin Daniel Cretton, and the co-writer, Dave Callahan. Like, all three of you are Asian men. So this is the first Asian, North American-led superhero movie in the MCU. But the original comic, <laughs> it employed some, some racist tropes. Um, so I was wondering, like, which qualities about Shang-Chi, like, which were you excited to incorporate? What did you want to keep? And what did you want to make sure was not a part of this movie?
3: Uh, what I wanted to keep uh, the name, <laughs> the fact that he could punch real good, and I think the fact that he had a very complicated relationship with his father figure. Hmm. But the rest, I think, didn't need to be any more than it had to. And um, I think it's a it's a real testament to the vision of you know the folks at Marvel, Kevin Feige, and and our creative producer Jonathan Schwartz as well. We were never really impressed upon to embrace you know elements from the comics that we ourselves didn't feel comfortable. I think there was mm-hmm. there was an acute awareness that those were not stories that were told by Asian or Asian American storytellers. and I, I think they were done with the best of intentions, especially at the time. but uh, you know I, as you mentioned, ultimately, I think fell into you know stereotype, fell into trope and, translated onto the screen would simply just not work. And so I think Destin and Dave and I were on the same page right from the get-go. We had like one conversation at Comic-Con four days after I was cast. I I kind of drop shipped into the middle of all of it and we kind of were very quickly like, look, we're not here to make another martial arts movie about a foreign guy who comes in and you know doesn't really have an arc doesn't really have a personality other than the fact that he's different he's from a different place and he speaks english differently you know we want this to be a real story where the the central character goes on a journey and is three-dimensional and and it is very much about his relationships more so than just the fighting and um I think that's what makes our movie special, and what will make it stand out, and what will make it just so emotionally resonant across a global audience.
2: Did you feel like you were empowered to like speak up and say, "Hey, guys, I have this lived experience coming in. This is my thought on this or that part of this character."
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I was uh, surprisingly so. I was um, coming from an environment where that you know very much wasn't the case. You know, coming into Marvel. I really thought that I would be just a tiny cog in a big machine, and and kind of told to just shut up and act. And um, what I was very pleasantly surprised by was that from day one, I was very much asked to provide my opinions and my notes, and give thoughts on not only my character but the story as a whole, and to you know speak about areas where things could potentially be problematic and or you know outdated or or just fall into you know uninteresting tropey territory and. Yeah, I think our story became better because of it. And not only myself, by the way. I think people from much further down on the call sheet were all invited. And I think it it all became a very collaborative and fun and positive environment. Mm
1: -hmm. That's, I don't know, that's like nice and refreshing to hear. Because before this, right, we know you best probably from Kim's Convenience. Mm -hmm. um, A show about the Korean-Canadian family. Um, But as we know, the showrunner was white. Uh, There were very few Korean writers in the writer's room. Um, And earlier this year, you wrote about how you were becoming increasingly frustrated at the way your character was written and also the way you were being treated. So like, how did your experience on Kim's convenience differ from this experience on Shang-Chi?
3: I really think it just comes down to the culture, you know, and I think working at Marvel is the epitome of a company that, you know, puts its culture first and foremost. I I didn't necessarily feel that working with with other productions, and granted, you know, we're dealing with different situations, different budget level, different timelines, so I don't want to speak too much about that. I I want to keep the focus on, you know, our movie and all the things that we did right, Mm -hmm. which I think is apparent on screen. And I think, you know, in situations where that's not the case, it's also apparent on screen, and and so I can say I was definitely not frustrated. I wasn't experiencing intense frustration on, on the set of this movie. Um, by any means, I, I was empowered every day. And, um, you know, when I did get frustrated, it was it was mostly at myself for not being able to kick high enough or do, do the complex choreography. But uh, um, thankfully, you know, we, we did get through it.
2: There's one thing I was curious about, and that's how Shang-Chi gets this shirtless scene, of course, where he is admired from afar but when will he have a romantic interest? You know, he's, I think, maybe the only male superhero in the MCU without one right now. And his character has this platonic, beautiful friendship with Aquafina's character, Katie. But how did you feel about him not also having that other element that is so part of so many of these superhero origin stories?
3: i'm I'm aware of how sensitive this topic is pertaining to our community. But I don't think we do anybody any favors by allowing our story to be driven by anything that doesn't strengthen you know, the story that we're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. And I think if we shoehorned a romance for the sake of shoehorning a romance, that wouldn't help anybody. Um, I think I would love to come back and explore with the character. I think... You know, I, I would love to entertain a, a romance if it makes sense and, and if it's compelling storytelling. But I think that has to serve the story first. I think um, when you let art be dictated too much by the politics of it all, I think uh, you, you run the risk of just not creating good art. And, um, you know, all of that to say I do hear it. I, I understand that there's frustration that comes from within certain parts of the community. But at the same time, you know... We are portraying an amazing superhero that is badass, that is jacked, that is uh, hopefully charismatic and charming and and all of those things. So, I mean, if that's not a win for representation, I I don't know what is.
2: Is that a weird thing for you to navigate yourself, you know, in this position now of having... These conversations about self-image and masculinity and desirability <laughs> within this community, as you mentioned, you know, and and being part of that focus,
3: I, I'm glad that it's a part of the conversation at all. You know, I, I you know, growing up as an Asian guy, um, you know, for sure, there's moments where you feel emasculated, where you feel like the way that you're portrayed in the media is such that you're, you know, undesirable, and I think that affected my self-image growing up. It affected mm-hmm. my Self-confidence, my ability to see myself in a romantic setting, um, but I also think that you know Asian women experience this on a very different level. But but nonetheless, you know, as a flip side of the same coin, and I think it all kind of has the same root, which is that we men and women have not been the masters of our own narrative over time and and that's caused kind of one part of our community to be hypersexualized one part of our community to be desexualized whereas we both collectively just want to be seen as human beings and so i don't think it's a problem that only asian men face i think that would be a total uh, misconception and i think that you know uh, the key to our salvation comes from being able to tell our stories and being able to communicate with one another and to collaborate and and cooperate. Mm.
1: It's, like, part of it is very refreshing to see a woman in an MCU movie who is not there to be, you know, ogled or just, like, the hot one that's kicking ass. (laughs) Yeah, so, like, I appreciate what you said about this. Um, Recently, I think Disney CEO Bob Chapek, he called the film's release, quote-unquote, an interesting experiment, Um, You responded by posting, we are not an experiment. We are the underdog, the underestimated. We are the ceiling breakers. Why did you feel the need to speak up and address that specifically?
3: Um, Well, I want to say that Disney and I have always been on the same page about how fired up we are about the movie. You know, we we all believe in the success of this movie and its characters and its story. And, um, you know, I think if anything, I was just speaking to what I was seeing in the media starting to pop up and, and more so mm-hmm. responding to that than anything else, not necessarily um, anything to do with the studio. So, you know, I'm, I'm very, very happy with the support that Disney's put behind this movie. And I look forward to continuing to collaborate with Disney and, and pushing this movie out because they know what they're doing.
2: So it was a misunderstanding, as Kevin Feige, the head of Marvel Studios, said?
3: No I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say I I think I'm just really fired up about the movie and and uh, both Kevin and and everybody else uh, I think are fully on board with that.
2: Well there's so much pressure and attention that comes along with being the first no matter who it is and that pressure that responsibility how do you find yourself that you are meeting this moment uh and all that comes with it like what's getting you through?
3: Um Coffee. <laughs> I think there's a little part of me that knows that you know, despite any conversations about pressure or burden, all of this is an insane privilege. Is an insane privilege, and um, a part of me also knows that my career was built on projects like Kim's Convenience, which you know, despite all of the discourse surrounding it, was made possible because a Korean Canadian man wrote a play and had that play optioned into a show and then had that show employ, you know, so many Asian Canadian performers. I think that's not lost on me at all. And I think um, I want to continue to be a representative if I can, um, an advocate for, for us and, and for Asian American issues and, and discourse and, um, and also in the future, hopefully to be able to uplift Asian American voices and other voices that have been marginalized and to be able to uh, shed a light onto even more experiences and, and conversations that way.
2: Right, because you have your own production company too, right? And projects that you're driving.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, it's been on ice recently just because of how busy everything else has been. But um, I am really, really excited to have a little bit of breathing room and, and the time to kind of start doing things like pursuing IP and developing scripts and casting I think it's the natural next step for me, and uh, what I'm what I'm really really looking forward to for the future.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean,
1: you, you've sort of touched on this, but you're an MCU superhero now. What other barriers do you want to break?
3: So there's so many, you know. I I think that Asian Americans have not really been allowed to exist in this space for very long or for very many things. I think uh, I'm really excited to just be seen in, in a you know contexts that are counter to what people are used to seeing and, and, you know, defying trope. I think pretty much in any movie that would be the case. Um, I think the only wrong move would be doing more martial arts movies and doing kung fu for my entire career, which I have no interest in doing. Um, I think I want to find great projects in different genres, explore interesting characters, and just show people the humanity of Asian-Americans and the subtleties, the nuances, the dimensionality, and also the goofiness, just all of the things that encapsulate the human experience.
2: Thanks for tuning in to our special bonus episode of Asian Enough. And thank you to Simu Liu for joining us. If you love our show, you know what to do. Spread the love by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, telling a friend about us, or following us on Instagram at, at AsianEnoughPod. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato.
1: And by me, Tracy Brown. Our producer is Asala Sanapur, and our senior producer is Hiba El-Orbani. Our editor is Shani Hilton. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. This podcast was created by Jen Yamato and Frank Shung. Special thanks to Clint Schaff, Jeff Berkshire, James Reed, and Matt Brennan. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of our founding producer, Lina Anwar. See you next time!